from University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do, a weekly podcast about the innovators, teachers, dreamers, and performers of Puget Sound and the stories behind the work they do. Hello and welcome to Puget Sound's weekly podcast, coming to you this afternoon from the luxurious What We Do studios on Alder Street. I'm your host, Chuck Luce, and with us is Assistant Professor of Economics, Leah Fortman, whose research interests focus on environmental economics and international sustainable development, and Professor of Chemistry, Stephen Nesheba, who studies physical atmospheric science with a focus on ice and the climate system. Well, welcome, professors. Thank you for joining us today. You have a National Science Foundation grant to develop a new course. Can you tell us a little something about that? Well, we wrote this grant, and the idea behind it was that we could create these learning modules using um, this phrase, computational guided inquiry, which um, Professor Neshbook can tell you about. So in the learning module, the idea is that we can create this, um, this set of instructional material that we can share with other instructors that they will be able to easily implement into their courses. And the idea is to make this interdisciplinary so we're not just looking at the science of climate change or like the chemistry of the carbon cycle, but like social science classes like environmental economics or climate change economics or even um, maybe in potential math classes that use some sort of data analysis. So kind of trying to reach out to a broad audience and give them more um, information and background, specifically using polar data, which is part of the grant. Okay, so maybe we ought to talk about what the, what the, the topic for the course is. And, and also, maybe even before that, you're not developing that just for students here. Mm-hmm. This, this will be something that people can pick up elsewhere. That's the hope. And the topic then, for the subject of the course would be? So we go into multiple courses, right? And so like right now, we're jointly teaching a connections course, science and economics of climate change. So we teach it next spring. We're hoping to be able to kind of roll out some of these modules. And the goal of the modules is to try to, um, one, use polar data, which is part of the grant, and two, kind of instill some skills into the students by using these, you know, IPython, which is a computational tool, Mm -hmm. um, Mm-hmm. or you may be even using Excel in some cases, and then also kind of increase their analytical skills and also in a more active learning sense where they'll be semi-flipping the classroom while they'll be doing some stuff at home, and then we'll come into the classroom and, like, really work with, you know, these computational models in the classroom with, like, the professors guiding them. And so we have a pretty... We're trying to disseminate them to a broad audience. So we'll have a workshop this summer where we have professors from the University of Washington, um, maybe UW-Tacoma some of the others, and we'll all come together and teach them, explain the modules to them, go through them, and then they will take them and implement them in their classes. Okay. Uh, You said flipping classes. What does that mean? So the idea of flipping is is that the the conventional structure of a classroom is uh, a professor stands and, and, and gives a lecture and says the homework is this, and then students go home and do the homework and then they come back the next time and go on that way. And the idea of flipping is that it inverts those that, that whole process. So you m- deliver content to students by means of a video, which uh, you know, we've both sort of been grappling with. And uh, so like you upload a YouTube video and you say, you know, this is you know, acid-based chemistry or this is carbon cycle. And then students, you know, that creates class time for then what would have been homework. 
So now students are like grappling with problem solving and, and things like that, uh, you know, maybe in small groups and, and maybe maybe with you. I love it. I've been doing flipping in, in chemistry for a few years. Um, it's kind of came out of the high schools as, a, as, a, as an innovation. Um, and um, it's, it, the great thing for me is that I don't have to spend, you know, this precious time in class just delivering something that doesn't actually really require any interaction. I can, that can all get fogged off uh, on, onto YouTube, basically. And that way I feel like I'm doing what I do best, which is helping students solve problems. I think that's basically the flipping. So that's the flipping bit of it. Okay. And uh, again, these, what you're developing, you're using climate science, polar climate science as the topic. But these things can then be applied in other ways. The the, the techniques you're you're coming up with. Yeah. So, but to put it, you know, from the perspective of I think where NSF was coming from, the deal was I think so. It, it's two divisions at NSF who who are promoting this. One of them is the Division of Polar Programs, and the other one is the Undergraduate Education. And um, I think what happened was they said. Division of Polar Programs said, we have all this awesome research and data that's coming out of polar research, okay? Tons and tons of stuff, but it's, it doesn't tend to get out to the public because it's, you know, poles are a long way away and, and, um, and the data might not be all that easy to, to interpret. It's a little abstruse to, for average people. Uh, might be, yeah. and, um, and, and so they thought, well, one possible outlet could be, you know, undergraduate curricula. And so they teamed up, so Polar Programs you know, teamed up with the undergraduate um, education part of NSF. And I think basically they put out a, a request for proposals to the community and said, you guys out there in the community, do you have any ideas, <laughs> okay, on, you know, what might come up? And I saw it, and, you know, I, my research, I'm, I'm kind of an atmospheric science, I study ice, um, I do a bunch of field work. I just got out of Chile um, uh, a few months ago. My wife, uh, Dr. Penny Rowe, is a, she actually was in the Antarctic until a few days ago. Um, and um, so we've got the polar research down in the family. And, uh, and, and then, of course, Leah and I are educators and we teach. And so we thought, why well, we should be able to put together something, you know, that, 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 you know, moves that project forward for, for NSF. So that was that piece of it. Um, and then the, uh, the, this whole concept of, you know, I, the, the, the problem that, that kind of presented was that how do you actually fit that into a course? Okay, how do you actually, how do you actually make that happen? And it wouldn't really have worked if we had said, I'm gonna just deliver a lecture on polar data. That would have, that just, you know, that was just a non-starter. It had to be a situation where students themselves were saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look at this polar data now. But then you have to say, well, how are you going to look at it? You know, and then you have to have representational tools, you know, Google Earth type tools or, or whatever. Uh, and so now you have to say, well, we have to train these students on how to use these tools so that they can look at this cool data. <laughs> and so... So that's kind of how the whole flipping thing fits into it because we can say we're going to help them with a lot of the content and, 
and things so that, as I said, um, we can create space and time in the classroom so that they can run those those models or look at those representations and uh, and do it that way. So, I mean, for one thing, we've just kind of launched a couple of these just now. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, The first thing that we did in this uh, climate uh, change course, which is called the Science and Economics of Climate Change, and mm -hmm. which we're co-teaching. This is happening this semester. This is happening mm -hmm. this semester. And so, right, we didn't really want to wait until we got the funds from NSF to move this forward. So uh, the first week, the first two weeks of, uh, of this climate change course, the students, we train them up on, on how to run. Turns out there's educational global climate models that are out there. You could run it. We could all run them. Uh, you download them and, uh, and you, you, you choose a scenario from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And then you say, well, the world's gonna look, look like this in the year you know, 2050. And I think that it's a great example because students are not, um, I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with polar data, but it's great because students are actually sort of grappling with the model. They're, they're not just saying, oh, the temperature will be such and such in the year 2050. They're actually looking at a map of the globe, okay, and they can see the rainfall is different here, temperature is different over there. Um, so that sort of sense of, of combining representations with modeling, putting all those tools into the hands of students. Right. Um, so we're really talking here about experiential learning in the classroom. Are, are you finding that, that this kind of representation helps to draw in students who might not necessarily be interested in science? Yeah, that's one of the goals of this project too, is I think to, you know, traditionally you have, you know, your atmospheric science classes, or you might have a geology class that looks at global um, climate change over, you know, thousands of years. But I think one of the goals of NSF, and our goal here is to try to expand the audience and try to, how do we bring this into other classes that would normally would never, um, one, maybe even talk about climate change in that class, or two, definitely not see any sort of polar data in that class. And so that was one of our goals here. And so I've been teaching, you know, economic classes, environmental economics classes. That's my area of research for a couple of years now. And we talk about climate change, but we don't talk about polar data. So one way could be to talk about climate change in the context of looking at polar data. So that's kind of one of the goals here. And then once every college offers, hopefully, or maybe an environmental economics course to their undergraduates. So this could be an easily, an easily disseminated tool that other students could learn. Or even, but you know, beyond that, we're even thinking of maybe, you know, environmental studies programs, or even if you think of uh, like a statistics course, they need data to analyze, and you could take some polar data, and then they could, you know, maybe you could provide some context to the course about what they're looking at, and they could look at changes in, you know, polar data over time. And so just, you know, even little ways to kind of incorporate it into a wider range of classes, um, we think would be, you know, one of the goals of this project too, is, you know, increased learning and literacy of climate change to a broader audience, and not just in, you know, traditional science courses. How are the students responding so far? It's, I think, well, we have a good mix. We have, we do have, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of science majors, a lot of bio, some chem. There's a handful of economics majors. So mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. they all get to um, shine, you know, when they're, when they're recovering topics that maybe they have a little bit more background in. But I think so far, the classes seemed pretty engaged and interested. Uh, we're on the topic of, of, of polar climate. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is what we've been hearing in the news lately, the great big crack in our Antarctica. Um, 
What can you tell us about that? Well, it's I, I know that Big it's topic, uh, I know. that it's in the the Antarctic Peninsula. Uh, other other ice sheet. It's an ice sheet, so that that ice is sitting on water. And uh, the reason that that's kind of important is that if that cracks off, it won't change the sea level. So we're not looking at uh, we're not looking at that perturbation right now. The danger is that when those ice shelves crack off and and go away. If there are built up land sheets of ice, that now that ice shelf is out of the way, what happened, that what the glaciologists are telling us is that it, it makes room now for the land-based ice to slide into the, you know, to more easily drop into the sea. And that does have a, that does have a big uh, potential impact on sea level. And sea level is one of the big, you know, social, political, economic consequences of climate change that we're looking at and that we don't really have, you know, it's not just, quite clear what you know how fast that change is going to happen um, so that's what I can tell you about the actual you know there's a big crack <laughs> so if this thing does break off is it large enough in itself to accelerate climate change by altering what's going on in the oceans so that's a very you know it's a pretty important question that people are, are looking at um, there's a paper that came out recently uh, in which um, what they're looking at is the fact that the that that ice that's now going to be sitting in the water will melt and as it melts it delivers fresh water and it delivers uh, cold water and those two things kind of affect the density of the water and what happens is that there's certain parts of the uh, southern ocean that control um, a lot of the exchange of carbon dioxide for one thing because as water's upwell or they get you know, subducted into the into the depths, um, it's it can affect how much you know whether or not carbon dioxide is going to continue to be um, essentially taken out of the atmosphere by the Southern Ocean. The Southern Ocean has played a huge role so far in essentially consuming um, some of the excess carbon dioxide that we put there. So the melting water that comes off those 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 ice sheets, those ice shelves, if it changes the pattern of, of ocean circulation then um, it's, it's pretty big news. But if we were going to try to include that in a course, then what, you know, I mean, that's kind of where, where our heads are at. How, how would that information be grappled with by a student? And the ideal situation would be something like, well, how do I, how do I find this out? Well, I, I'd probably read a paper about it if, 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 if it's been around long enough. Um, I try to get hold of some data, like, like what are the data that says how deep is this crack, where is the crack, what's the mass of the ice, you know, there's, those data are out there, and if you've sort of already primed your students to be able to go out and get that data and pull it back, then, um, then they could make these statements, you know, so that, that would, that's kind of the, the pedagogy of this approach, is that we wouldn't actually be really answering the question, um, what's going to be the impact of this crack it would be okay student you tell me what the impact of this crack is based on evidence and data um, so that's that's kind of yeah we were talking about computational tools students can use can you tell us more about the kind of tools you prefer to use with your students and their application for real world problems what really screams out at you when you when you run a, a global climate model, a GCM, okay, this product called EdGCM, it's not it's not a toy, 
this model. It's actually, it's, it comes from out of the NASA GIS model, which is one of the world's best global climate models. It's a bit pared down. It doesn't have the spatial resolution that, you know, that, that, they, that they run on the supercomputers, but it's, it's the real deal, okay? It's a bona fide research tool. And to me, that, that's really critical in terms of pedagogy because there's a lot of computational tools that are out there where somebody has written something explicitly, explicitly for the purpose of educating you about whatever, you know, acid-based chemistry and they created software in order so that you will step through this and that is not what computational guided inquiry is about at all okay it's not you receiving some pedagogical product it's you the student mastering some bona fide research tool so you see so that's um that's one big difference. So in this GCM, what comes screaming out at you as you look at it is you see, oh, it's going to get a lot hotter in these, these parts of Australia, and it's going to get a lot wetter in this other part of the world, okay? So the place that that becomes, if you think about it long enough, what you realize is that the consequences of climate change are going to have big winners and big losers. That mm -hmm. is a kind of an important point because if you don't realize that, if you haven't grappled with that thought, then you, and I've seen these statements put out there by people that say, the world on average will be a little better off. You know, you see these statements, you know, plants will grow better, okay? The world on average, and to me, that's such an offensive statement because nobody lives an average life i live my individual life and if i'm going to be one of the losers i need to know about it right so to me that um grappling with the products of the gcms you you can't help but start to think about sort of the texture of global climate change mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i think that because we started the course with you know these using this GCM, looking at maps of, you know, precipitation where it's wet in the poles and dry around the equator. And just looking at those blaze contexts for when we talk about economic impacts and who's going to be the most harmed by climate change, all of those people around the equator, which are, you know, typically relatively poor countries, you know, dependent on subsistence agriculture, now they're going to have a lot more droughts, they might have flash floods, all of that's going to impact their productivity. Um, so those are the people who are going to be the losers and most harmed by climate change, whereas who's going to benefit? Um, northern regions, right? Like Europe, U.S., Canada, Russia are projected to have increased productivity because now it's warmer there. They can grow more crops, right? But So there's also this kind of ethical side of it, too, where who has contributed the most global warming emissions, you know, historically, it's the U.S. and Europe and all these really developed countries, right? But they're the ones who are standing to benefit from it when who's going to be the most harmed are all these developing poor countries who, one, have not historically committed, admitted, you know, any emissions relative to these big developed countries, and two, they, even though they're going to be the most harmed, they don't have the money or the resources to do anything about it. So they're kind of um, just dependent on maybe the goodwill of all these other nations to, you know, give them aid or give them technology. And so it's, it's really a huge, you know, political, environmental science, economic issue, moral issue um, on, you know, multiple, multiple scales. 
which has been one of the reasons why it's been so hard to to get any real movement, you know, in terms of progress towards climate policy is you have, you need to have all these nations acting together and coming together and, you know, committing to reduce admissions. But if if China doesn't do it, then the U.S. won't do it. Or if the U.S. doesn't do it, India won't do it. And you have, um, if we don't have any global enforcement, you know, mechanism or big stick to make countries do it, it's all kind of well, cooperation and international negotiations. Okay, so that's the course. But while we're on the topic of climate change, I, I can't help bringing up now, forgive me, the, the polarized discussions we are hearing. The rhetoric has become... I'd call it almost hysterical, so that people are no longer hearing one another. Can you give us your thoughts on the best way to understand or talk about climate change? If you look at the if you look at the discourse out there in the blogosphere, and there's websites and there's deniers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or you talk to your brother-in-law, and um, which I did recently, <laughs> and what you find is that a lot of the discourse has been super politicized super politicized so that when it comes to warming you're the person that you're having this conversation with inevitably has a lot of what i would call you know pre-processed answers so it's almost impossible to have an evidence-based neutral sort of objective discussion around certain topics because they've been so heavily politicized but as you pointed out, there are a lot of other consequences of climate change that haven't been politicized. And you can actually make a lot of, you know, you can, you can, you can have real conversations with people if you don't talk about those highly politicized ones. And the one, and we're, 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 we're going to tackle that uh, in our course, is, is actually the chemistry of climate change, the ocean acidification, okay? And we almost lost here in Puget Sound 10 years ago, we almost lost the oyster industry here. It almost got tanked. And the reason it was tanked as it was eventually figured out was we have uh, occasionally we have acidified waters that are coming making their way into Puget Sound and preventing the larvae from, of, the, of the oysters from developing. Okay? So you, you can't... Um, if you're having a conversation about this and you know the, the standard objections might come up like oh this is a natural oscillation in the climate system well no it's not you can look at the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the air and it's just going up and you look at it at what's in the ocean and it's just going up and for as long as we have known there have been oysters in Puget Sound and 10 years ago that almost got you know destroyed so you know, in the case of my brother-in-law, he's a chemist, a pharmacist, and he was, oh, I get that. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense, you know, to me. So even though you can't make progress in these very charged conversations on certain topics, I think spreading out the conversation to talk about the whole, the whole thing of climate change, you know, is, can be quite important. Um, and of course, you know, there's a lot going on in terms of evaluating the impacts of climate change in the Pacific Northwest. There's these fantastic groups, the Climate Impacts Group of the University of Washington have come out with document after document, you know, on this. And, um, you know, and there's forestry, there's ocean acidification, you know, there's, 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 
you know, a dozen categories that all of which are really, you know, hydroelectric power. When is it going to be generated? What's the timing on it? Will we have a, a ski industry? <laughs> You know, all these different, you know, impacts that you don't, you don't have to get stuck in those, in those sort of dead-end conversations, I guess. So, so if you focus the conversation on, on something that the person can relate to, you might have better chance of, of having a meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. And for which data are available and, and, you know, easy to understand. Let's say I'm a policymaker. What kinds of questions should I be asking? So that's actually one of the things we're working on with our students too, and that will be part of these modules we're developing is um, what, you know, given a standard lecture, you know, what kind of the questions come out of that? Like um, we've, been sh we've been presenting them a, a graph of maybe different temperature changes, precipitation changes, or today at the end of class, I gave them a, a graph of different emissions trajectory scenarios from the IPCC. And then we just asked, looking, just looking at this graph, you have a little information now about an integrated assessment model that measures climate change impacts over time. What are some questions that come to mind just looking at this graph? And they had to write three to five questions. And so, and then, you know, the next step is going to be now they're going to go work with this model and they're going to, you know, increase population or they're going to decrease um, carbon intensity of output, you know, like how much carbon goes into making, you know, $100 worth of goods and services. And, you know, when they adjust these parameters, they're going to be able to see for themselves how, they, how the trajectories change for admission scenarios. And so our, our goal is that we're going to be able to allow them to ask kind of more thoughtful, deeper questions that really get at some of the factors driving these models or some of the assumptions behind these models. Um, you know, what are the limitations of these models? So I think that is, you know, maybe something that they could then take and then ask a policymaker or a legislative official and what, what types of assumptions are you making when you're doing this policy? And now they'll have that background to say, well, you're assuming that with five degrees Celsius of warming that, you know, pr productivity and economic growth is still going to happen. And is that a realistic assumption to make that we're all going to be way better off in a hundred years, even though we are living in a world that's nine degrees warmer or something? So I mean, I think that's kind of one of the goals too, is to help them ask um, those deeper, more um, questions that really get at the issue instead of that. Why is that line slope upward, or you know, why does that line curve downward? Really, like, what are driving these these models and these policy scenarios that are going to affect um, climate change policy? The, the state level, we just had the the carbon tax initiative that unfortunately didn't pass I-732 for Washington, but even um, federal level policies and whatnot. So now hopefully they'll have the tools to ask better questions about that. So, so one thing students will take out of this course is being better informed citizens. So when they're out there, they can help people ask the right questions. Well, I would say, I mean, yes, exactly that, but it's kind of a the NSF is quite interested, the education part of NSF is quite interested in understanding how students learn. And as we kind of been talking with Professor Amy Bryken here, um, the ability to generate questions is really important. And it's, it's what we all do as professionals in our, in our research. We, we generate questions. But how does that how does that work in the classroom? In other words, yeah, how how do we accomplish what what Leah you know just just mentioned? And 
it seems a silly exercise, but the way that we're trying to the way we're trying to do that is by putting these models in the hands of the students. Fine. How do we know that it worked? Well, what we do is we give a questionnaire before they run the model and we say, here's a picture, write five questions about it. Just write five questions. And then at the end of the model, we'll give them the questionnaire again and say, write five questions about this. And so, and we haven't done this experiment yet, but the, the idea is that we could show that the pedagogy makes them better question askers. And I think that that's just kind of, right, that's kind of an important point about, you know, we're scientists in the sense, or we're social scientists as teachers as well. We want to know whether this model is working. Polar science is not something we see too much at the undergraduate level. Why then use it as a topic for developing a course in a liberal arts setting? This is, once again, this is kind of coming from NSF's perspective that uh, why would polar research and polar data, why would that fit into a standard undergraduate curriculum? It's our vision that this great treasure trove of, of data and sciences coming out of the polar regions could fit in. And, and, it, and it could make those courses better. And one of the insights that you know, we had as we were thinking through this is that polar science, yeah, it's not very accessible because it's in remote regions, but polar science is carried out by lots of different disciplines. There's atmospheric scientists and chemists and biologists and economists and, 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 and creative writing specialists who are all engaged in polar research. So the research itself is intrinsically interdisciplinary. And this is kind of the thought that we had was, okay, if it's intrinsically interdisciplinary, that means aspects of polar data and polar research will find a home in your economics course or in your chemistry course and so on. And it's it's important that it find a home and it's even more important to us that that it accomplishes something in your physical chemistry course that doesn't squeeze something else out. In other words, I'm teaching a physical chemistry course. I've already got my syllabus. It's all there. You're asking me to take something out so that you can fit your polar data set in. That's that's not going to be that's just not going to that's a non-starter, okay? People are not going to want to teachers are not going to want to do that. But if we say here's the deal, you take our module, this computational guided inquiry module, which we have already made for you, and it's going to teach you all about the first law of thermodynamics. It's going to do that for you. Okay, it's going to do it with polar data, but it's going to do that. So it's an easy choice for you, the instructor, to say, fine, I'll give up my lecture notes for that week, and you get to give me your, your module. Well, thank you so very much for what I, for me personally, was a was a terrifically in, uh, informative and interesting conversation. Uh, I wish I was in this class. <laughs> um, maybe I can drop in sometime. You'd be welcome. welcome. Yep. Well, again, thank you. We'll look forward to hearing how this comes out. Uh, oh, and, and by the way, is, is there a culminating project for the course? Have you gotten that far yet? Yes, actually, um, 
we talked about kind of local northwest impacts due to climate change. So their their one reader for the course is climate impacts in the northwest, and then they'll have a group project where they have to pick one of those, whether it's you know oysters or land use or hydroelectricity or and then um, in that group they'll like what is the impact in that region or in that sector how what are some policy applications to address this and that's kind of their group project and then they'll present out to to the rest of the class yeah yeah Mm -hmm. well I think climate literacy is another concept that you know is good to touch on and that that's kind of what we're about and I know that climate change, of course, is a, is a, is a, is a controversial subject, and, and that's fine. But climate itself is, a, you know, an interesting topic. And just elevating or asking students to elevate for themselves their, their climate literacy, I think, raises the whole tone of the conversation so that, so that you're not subject to as much of the politis the, the you know the politicization of that, that, I, I, of that a, whole discussion sorry that's a great way to put it from from where I'm saying I mean be, be, all people have to hear is climate change and all of a sudden the political hackles go up right if we talk about climate literacy maybe that makes it a little bit easier for us to have an interchange okay cool yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, this guys. This yeah, is fun. Yeah. What We Do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes. 